Hello and welcome back to my lovely listeners. You are listening to Clarification, the psychology podcast by me, your host, Claire Adamson. In this podcast, we get into everyday life and we use psychology theories and concepts to help us understand ourselves better and each other better so we can navigate everyday life a little bit easier. As you may have noticed, I'd taken two weeks off of posting any new episodes because in spirit of full transparency, I really needed the time off to reassess, to recalibrate, to see what has been working well, what could I do better, and really hear from people how the podcast has been going so far. Not only that, but I think about Lauren Hill being interviewed once when she was talking about how people demanded from her to go back into the studio to be making more music. And she said, even creatives need time off of creating to live life, to be fully immersed in the everyday experience of living and not have the pressure to just be creating something all the time. I thought, and I carried those words with me into this hiatus and this break because Sometimes all we need is to get out of our everyday routines in order to change. And if you remember, that's what I talked about in the last episode. So I'd taken those two weeks off. And if you're listening, this is also your reminder to take time off from creating, functioning, producing, and working under capitalism, especially. Because sometimes all you need is a change in your routine in order to get more clarity going forwards, you know? Clarity, clarification, let's get into the episode. So you may have known this, but May was Mental Health Awareness Month. And I know we're in June and it's Pride and best believe I'll be doing an episode on queerness and queer identity in the future. I just didn't want to neglect speaking about mental health and neurodivergency on my podcast because it almost feels like I have so much coming out to do on the internet. So much more claiming of all these different kinds of identities that I wear. And I think particularly about this quote that I saw recently, I think it was on Instagram or on Pinterest where this woman writes, my thing, what I hope to do all the time is to be so completely myself that my audiences, people who meet me, are confronted. They're confronted with what I am, inside and out, as honest as I can be. And this way, they have to see things about themselves immediately. And this really struck a chord with me, and it I think it is something that I strive to do. I want it to be my thing because I think there's so much power in being able to see others live their lives authentically, unashamed, and say, yes, this is who I am. Because what that inspires is for other people to say, well, either the opposite, like, not, it's not me, or me too. And hearing all those me too's and people finally being comfortable and confident enough to share parts of themselves, because they've seen others do the same and share and be open about those things is so incredibly important. It's why representation is important. It's why we need positive role models going forward in our lives because this can all be a little bit messy and tricky and difficult to understand. So 
by nature of being open and vulnerable enough to have these conversations on the world wide webs, I hope that somebody can also say, hey, I think I feel that or that might be a little bit of me too. I know a lot of people would have already tuned out of this episode and this conversation because they think, hey, I feel fine. Mental health doesn't really affect me and I'm good. But I think that so many more people suffer from mental health issues than we would like to admit because a lot of people think that you can only have certain mental health problems if you've been diagnosed by a doctor or you can only have certain conditions and neurodivergencies when you have been diagnosed. And I have a huge problem with this for many reasons. One, uh, in order to go see a doctor and get a diagnosis, that costs money, obviously. And for people who are not socioeconomically at the point where they can spend extra money going to mental health uh, professionals, how can you tell those people that they're not suffering from mental health issues because a doctor hasn't confirmed it? Because at the end of the day, what psychiatrists and psychologists mostly do, apart from, you know, treatments and therapy, the diagnosis aspect of this is they look into the DSM-5. And the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic Manual for DS, Diagnostic, I should really start checking my abbreviations before I come on here and pretend like I know everything, because I don't, in a moment. The DSM-5 stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, Edition 5, which means that this has been ratified and rewritten five times to include either new things, to rewrite the requirements or symptoms that you face when you're experiencing a certain mental health disorder. And so the psychologists, the psychiatrists, they have the DSM-5 and they interview you or you have a intake session with them and they're matching what you're experiencing and the symptoms that you have onto this pre-written manual that talks about mental health. Not to mention that the DSM-5 and a lot of science literature that's put out, even though we like to consider science as fact, it is often man-made, like science is made up. <laughs> that sounds outrageous, but science is calculated and studied and we choose what to study and we choose what to measure. And when we're choosing all those things, can it really be that objective? Let alone the fact that a lot of science is only produced or researched and tested on weird people. And I'm not, I'm not no shade to anybody. Weird is actually an acronym, which stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic Participants. So the psychologists that sat down and wrote the DSM-5 were mostly conducting their research and their experiments on weird participants. And they were also thinking about functioning and what it means to be normal under a capitalist society. So for example, let's say you, let's say you lose someone in your life and you have a period of depression as a result from grief. That's very normal and a uh, 
completely valid way of human coping and dealing with loss. But because you are unable, for example, to go to work and function under capitalism, then they consider you sick because you're not able to be a functioning member of society. Because if you think about it, most of these mental health issues and disorders are now medicalized and treated so that you can go back to performing under capitalism. So you can go back to selling your labor for eight hours a day. So people who are neurodivergent or have mental health issues would be pathologized and classified as like sick or different. And yet what is different about them is the fact that they're not able to function and participate and sell their labor under the capitalist society. So you can see why this whole area and this whole field to me just feels very murky and confusing and exploitative because if you're just being treated and given medication so you can go back to functioning and go back to your nine to five, are people even really thinking about what are the root causes of these problems or nurturing people in a way that just allows them to live and be and be well without the need to work and perform. So that's why I think it's a bit confusing, complicated, tricky and exploitative. That might be a really big word, but on the end of the psychiatrists and psychologists and the institutions of psychiatry. On the other hand, for people who have been dealing with their differences and their inability to function under capitalism for their entire lives. Now being able to go to a psychologist or a therapist and then tell you like, oh, you actually might fall under the spectrum of having ADHD, for example. To hear that and to now understand why it is that you're different and what are the differences and the fact that you're not the only one that experiences these difficulties and differences can be incredibly liberating and helpful and enlightening to now look back at your life and think about, okay, I was doing these because of my mental health difference or my neurodivergency. Okay, now that I've had my little bit of a rant about capitalism and the institutions of psychiatry, let me speak about my introduction to the mental health world and all these institutions. And let me tell you a little bit more about my own diagnosis. So in 2017, I was going through a really dark period in my life. I spoke about this a little bit on my birthday post that I made. I was in fact very suicidal. I was ready to be done with this world and leave because I didn't see a possibility of the world ever getting brighter, which is really heavy for me to say. And it was really tough for me to go through that at 17. But I was able to get in contact with a really good psychologist. And he said, you have depression. You were depressed because I had been experiencing that for about two to three months at that point and could not function, couldn't go to school, couldn't write my exams or study because my whole world was just filled with this dark cloud 
or not even a dark cloud. Like my whole world was dark (laughs) and I did therapy and counseling and I went on some antidepressants and through therapy, I feel like was really able to understand what it was that was making the world feel so dark and how I could sit in the darkness and how I could continue to live and not, you know, be constantly thinking about ending my life. So that kind of went on, I would say up until I was like 20, when I started university in 2019, I had had, I was just experiencing periods of depression, maybe three, two to three months at a time, maybe twice a year, once a year, if I was lucky, but it would just be constantly reoccurring. On top of that, I had really bad anxiety as well. I just, um, if you think about depression as like closing your whole world down, anxiety was also just making me really anxious to the fact that I was depressed. I was like, I'm depressed and I can't do anything about it. And I can't get myself to go to this exam. I can't get myself to see my friends. And so now I'm anxious at the, at the fact that what are other people thinking about me? Why am I so different from other people? What's going on? So they would kind of like feed into each other. And I battled with this. I struggled with this. I took a couple of different kinds of medication. I went up to a quite high dose of one antidepressant and then down off it again. And I stopped taking my medication at times. It's just all a whirlwind of things, but it all felt really confusing. And it's only last year in 2022 did both of those other mental health diagnoses start to make sense. So in the summer of 2022, this time last year, I was experiencing a lot. You know, it was funny because I was ready to quit therapy, like tell my therapist, you know, I think we're done. Like, I'm really good. Like, I'm having the time of my life. Like, everything feels so good. All I want to do is stay outside and party and meet new people. And I was planning all sorts of things for my future. I was really ecstatic and to the point where it was abnormally so. I wasn't really sleeping. Mind you, it was summer. So, and in Europe, when the sun sets at like 10 p.m., it's really hard. It was really hard for me to go to sleep at 11 or 12. I would stay up until like 3 or 4 a.m. And then I would wake up at 6 a.m. And the first thing that I want to do is smoke weed. So I would wake and bake and then run on this like high all day and then still come back to my room at night and be writing pages and pages of scripts and essays I wanted to write and so many things. And I was telling my therapist, I was like, hey, listen, I think we're done here. And he said to me, are you sure? Like, I know you say that you're good, but what's really going on right now? I was like, I've just, I've never been happier in my entire life. And he was like, that's, that sounds a little bit suspicious. Started asking me a couple more questions. And what I can really remember him asking is when you walk down the street, does it feel like you're floating? And I said, nah, what are you talking about? And then I stopped to think about his question a little bit deeper. And I was like, hmm, 
strangely enough, yes, I do feel like I'm on this kind of magical cloud where I just go through the world unfazed and untouched by everything because I'm just literally in another world in my mind. And that should have started to ring some alarm bells for me because then he, what he went on to say is, Claire, I'm afraid you're experiencing a little bit of hypomania, which is a elevated mood for an extended period of time. And I was like, bro, you are literally the op. Like, how can I tell you that I'm doing well? After you see me be depressed, after you see me suicidal, I start to do all right. I start to do good. And you tell me that I'm manic. Like, <laughs> I was I was honestly furious to hear him say this. But after a while, I was like, damn, like, I guess I do feel really good but I also feel really bad at the same time. Like I was having really bad stomach problems. I wasn't really eating. I had lost like five kilograms of weight. So my like ribs were starting to stick out. I wasn't physically doing well, but mentally I was, I was in a different place. Genuinely, I was so unstoppable. I felt like I could take over the world and that nothing could ever stop me, you know? And I started to be like, oh, if I have like mania, if I'm manic right now, does that mean I have bipolar? And I was like, okay, I've experienced a lot of depression periods in the past. And now I'm sort of noticing like experiencing a little bit of mania. And in the DSM-5, there's different types of bipolar. So there's bipolar one and bipolar two. And for one of them, you just need to have experienced an episode of mania. And for the other, you need to have experienced at least an episode of depression and an episode of mania within the last six months. And so again, we get into the nitty gritties of what exactly are the things that they say on the DSM-5 and then how does that appear in your everyday life? So once I'd graduated and left uh, Amsterdam to return home for the summer vacation, I went to a mental health facility and spent about two weeks there with psychologists and psychiatrists just trying to understand whether I had bipolar or not. And I also, at the time when I was at the mental health facility, could not be smoking weed or taking any other drugs so that they could be certain that it was not because of the weed or drugs that I was experiencing that. But then the psychologist just was listening to me speak and speak and speak about my life. And he said, Claire, have you always talked this fast? I was like, yeah, pretty much. That's, you know, something that I've been doing forever. Have you always talked this fast? Have you always talked this much? Yes, my parents will tell you. I was a very hyperactive and imaginative child. And he started to ask me a couple other questions like about my thought patterns and my moods. And then he proposed this idea to me. He said, have you ever thought that it's possible that you have ADHD? So you see, this was really important at the time because I was now being medicated for what mental health issues that I was facing. And medication for bipolar disorder are usually antipsychotics, which are 
very potent, strong medications, especially if you don't actually have bipolar. If you start taking antipsychotics, they could be really bad for your mental health and your body. So the psychiatrist was trying to explore any other diagnoses before going ahead and labeling something quite intense as bipolar. So he said, have you ever thought about ADHD? And I said, no, not really. I have a cousin who was diagnosed with ADHD very early on in his life. And I was very different in behavior and symptoms to him. So I didn't ever see myself being ADHD. But the doctor said to me, you know, let's just do the assessment. And I did it. I think my dad was in the room and I just was reading this test and laughing because I couldn't believe that half of the things that I thought were just my personality or me being like silly and quirky were written down in an assessment for ADHD. I said, you've got to be joking. You're not serious. Like, how is it that I had gone my entire life without realizing that I was struggling with something that so many people across the globe struggle with? And I'll tell you why. I asked that question and I immediately have the answer. It's because, and you see this in diagnostic rates, women get diagnosed with ADHD at a much lower rates than men do. Because as we talked about the nitty gritties of the DSM-5, you see that people assigned female at birth just exhibit ADHD symptoms differently. We're also socialized differently in how we're presenting and how we're allowed to present and how rowdy or maybe hyperactive we're allowed to be. You just see that women go underdiagnosed for ADHD. And now if we're even thinking about intersectionality, being a black woman, it's even, even lower rates for that. And to me, that's just goes to show the inequality and the imbalance and the faultiness of all these systems that we are supposed to trust. So I feel like I got a late diagnosis because I'd been diagnosed with depression. I'd been diagnosed with a general anxiety disorder. And so I had thought that these were my mental health issues that would just be there forever. But now when we looked deeper into it, the reason why I have such bad anxiety is because of my thought rumination, which is also a symptom of ADHD, where when I have a negative thought, sometimes I find it very difficult to let it go. I will just think about that thought and make it worse and worse and worse in my mind and then have panic attacks and spiral because this big thought just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the time when I was in high school, I had really bad depression because I wasn't functioning in the environment. I wasn't performing as a normal student. And so that was because, I think partly because of the ADHD, living away from home for the first time, being at a boarding school with um, other people who are very high achieving, and then just being like, damn, I'm really not as good as these people. Why can't I function? What's wrong with me? I'm useless, I'm a failure, I can't do anything. And that's how I would think myself into depression or spiral out of control because of this anxiety and rumination. So that's kind of how all my mental health issues now started to make sense in light of this diagnosis. 
Honestly, I think getting the ADHD diagnosis was life-changing for me because when I was diagnosed with depression or anxiety, I kind of let those labels become my entire personality. Like not only, it's not that I had depression, it is I was depressed. It became a part of my identity and I got so comfortable being sad and feeling hopeless all the time. When my life started to improve and things would get better in a material, physical sense, I really didn't even know how to respond. I had almost forgotten how to be happy and live in like a lighthearted way that I would just continue to perpetuate my sadness and continue to dwell in depressing and dark thoughts because that's just who I was. And when I started to not be so depressed and have more and more control over my thoughts and my life, it actually kind of felt bad to be happy. I was like, why am I happy? I'm supposed to be sad. Like I'm a sad girl. That's who I am, you know? And I feel like a big part of moving away from being like, I am depressed. I'm a depressed person into I have ADHD and, you know, I can get depression sometimes. There's almost like a funeral I had to have for the sad girl. I had to be like, yo, listen, I know that's who you think you are, but you have capacity for so much joy in your life, in your everyday, in your personality. You have the capacity for joy and you're just really limiting your world by only imagining that sadness is who you are. And I feel like that has a lot to do with like the labels and the weight that we put on getting this diagnosis and verification of your mental health problems by professionals. When someone tells you something like, oh, you have this or you are this, those labels can be so heavy, so heavy to wear, but also so heavy to take off and break free from that it requires a lot of work. I could talk forever about this topic and there will definitely be more episodes on neurodivergency, maybe specifically ADHD or people on the autism spectrum also coming to talk to me and talk with us about these topics. But what I really wanted to drive home with this episode is the fact that in order to get a diagnosis, you first of all need to have money you need to be able to pay the doctor's bills and go to the hospital. And you need to be able to explain your cognitive functions. So what kind of goes on in your brain? What are your thoughts? How do you function as a person? And it can be so difficult to have the language to do that. On top of that, you explain, you spend maybe, if you're lucky, an hour with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And then they're supposed to give you this label to describe what you are or tell you what your problems are. When you've been experiencing this for your entire life, you're just supposed to boil it down into a couple of bullet points for the diagnosis, which is just problematic to me. And then on top of that, then when you get this diagnosis, the problem that I really faced was letting the label consume me and becoming the diagnosis, like performing depression and 
if I started to get happy, be like, you're not supposed to be happy. You're depressed. Can you go back to being depressed so that you can, you know, live under the label or be true to the label that you've gotten from the psychiatrist? So these are the things that I wanted to complicate and bring into conversation. We will have more conversations about this because I'm not even half the way done talking about the way ADHD runs my life. Um, It's a tough one. It's a tricky one. But I guess it was really enlightening knowing that other people face these problems too. That it wasn't just because I was a silly, quirky person, but because there were certain problems with executive functioning tasks like time management, prioritizing, impulse control, emotional control, metacognition, which means being able to observe your thoughts. And it's a relief to know I'm not the only one who struggles with these things. Slowly, I don't have the answers on how to make it better. Because the other thing is, are we supposed to be functioning eight hour days? Are we supposed to be working in capitalism? I'm always here to tell you no. I'm always here to say we're meant to live in communities by the sea, read books, grow plants in our garden. And I know I'm sounding all optimistic and delusional and romanticizing farm living, but this is really important in disability studies is this idea that you are not disabled. The environment is disabling. You are as you are, as you need to be. And sometimes who you are is just not fit and not cut out to be functioning under capitalism, under this hyper-productivity notion. I'm sending love, rest, peace, light, and patience to all my neurodivergent folks because I know it isn't easy. I really know it isn't easy. And we're just here fighting stigmas and fighting capitalism one day at a time. You have been listening to another episode of Clarification. And if you made it all the way to the end, I want to know who the truest and dearest and realest supporters are. So please put the clock emoji in one of my Instagram posts because I still don't know how to keep time. At my big age, time blindness kicks my ass. So just help a girl out with some extra clocks. It has been clarification time. Thank you and goodbye until next time.